Greetings and welcome to another installment of Witnesses of the King. This is an exposition of the book of Acts, and I, I don't want to say it's a verse-by-verse -verse exposition, for we would be in the book of Acts for uh, years, maybe even decades, if that were the case. But it is an overview, and we're touching on the, the highlights chapter by chapter as we go through the book. And we find here a great source of encouragement because what we find, and particularly today as we're in Acts chapter 4, we're going to find disciples, people like ourselves, people from all walks of lives, given the commission of Jesus Christ to spread the gospel, to be his witnesses throughout the world. And we find these people in difficult situations. And generally, for most of us, at least in the Western world, this is more difficult than, than we've ever seen or, or may see in our lives. And we look back on that and we see that they were able to stay faithful even in the midst of difficulty. And so we come to the text today in Acts chapter 4. And we saw that last time Peter and John had healed a man. And it, they uh, took that opportunity then as this man was rejoicing with them. And this was a great sign done. And everyone knew who the man was. They brought him into the temple area and they began to teach uh again, about Jesus and about the resurrection and, and all the things we discussed back then. And then they're brought before the authorities because this drew so much attention and some of the authorities heard they were teaching about the resurrection, which they didn't agree with. And so they have them arrested. They have them brought before the rulers. They wait till the next day at their convenience to, to bring the, Peter and John before them and, and ask them the question, you know, by whose name or by what authority have you done this thing? And they answer and they say, well, this was by Jesus and the, this Jesus whom you crucified, but God raised. And he is indeed the only way of salvation. So we saw last time that Peter and John got up before these authorities and clearly and boldly proclaimed exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was exciting to see their answer was a radical confrontation to their audience at that time. And indeed, it has been a radical confrontation, this gospel has, to, to virtually every place and every time it's ever gone. So we'll continue to look at this answer today that they give to these rulers and then their response to it as they return to the disciples. And we're going to look at a great contrast that Luke gives us here in Acts chapter 4. And it is a contrast between the faithful of God who choose faithfulness, and the opponents of God who choose vanity. So take a look at the verses here as we read through them, and we'll be able to see this unfold right before us. We're going to start in verse 5 so we get the full context. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now look, Lord, upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, our earnest prayer today is that you would fill your messenger with your spirit that you would make yourself known through the proclamation of your word, that as this word of truth of Jesus Christ goes out, this word of salvation to all the world, we pray that you will bless this word as you have promised, that you will accomplish your will, that you will call together a great number from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language to make for yourself a nation that was not a nation, to make for yourself a people after your own name, to make yourself known and glorified in this world. Lord, we pray you'll accomplish these things through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, an interesting passage to say the least. I hope you're, you're amazed by it. And in this passage, we see some good news and we see some bad news. And today we're going to start with the good news. Here's the first thing I want you to notice today is that God's people choose faithfulness. God's people choose faithfulness. Now, if you want a definition of faithfulness, it may be best found in Hebrews chapter 11, which is sometimes called by people the hall of faith. 
There, the saints of old are paraded past our view. Each one is commended for his faith as it displayed itself in their works. And you can see Hebrews chap, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 there on your screen. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In Scripture, faith and believe come from the same word, both noun and verbal forms. But in English, we don't use faith as a verb, and we don't use believe very often as a noun. And so our translations have these as different words. But when you see belief or faith in the Scriptures, understand we're talking about the same thing. Biblical faith is true belief. And as it's defined and demonstrated in Hebrews chapter 11, it shows us clear, clearly that biblical faith always demonstrates itself with works. True belief will affect the mind, our emotions, and even our will. So when someone acts on a belief, we see that the will is enveloped by this faith, by this belief. And then we know it acts itself out and shows itself to be true faith. Now, faithfulness, uh, the word faithfulness itself can be thought of as loyalty or steadfastness to a person or a set of beliefs, perhaps concerning a particular person like it does in Christianity. So faithfulness then can be thought of as the consistent acting out of one's faith or their beliefs. And each person in Hebrews chapter 11 is described as doing good works, and they do those good works by faith. That means according to their faith. That means because they have faith, they do these good works. We see Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and many of the judges paraded before us for their faithfulness. And he kind of sums it up as he gets to the prophets of the Old Testament. So he's going chronologically through the Old Testament in Hebrews 11, he begins to sum it up when he gets to the prophets towards the end of the chapter. And listen to what it says here in the book of Hebrews. It says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they were looking forward to something. They didn't yet have it. They were acting on promises of God, promises that are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they were acting in faith in the promises, therefore in Jesus Christ himself. They lived out their lives. And I took that part at the end there because things were not good for the prophets. Things were difficult for the prophets. And many of them were, were killed for their faith, for their following of, of God and their proclaiming of the truth. Uh, people do almost anything to squash hearing the truth. And they lived out their faith even though the times were bad. And this is important for us because this we call, of course, persecution. And persecution is something that was predicted by Jesus. Persecution does not 
come out of left field, so to speak, at us. It's not something that should come upon us and surprise us, for this is precisely what Jesus predicted for his people. I want to show you uh, in Matthew chapter 10 how he says this. This is profound. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says this to his disciples. Okay, so they're not going to be these conquering heroes. They're not going to be, you know, the, these type that, that just take over everything by their sheer will and by their great charisma, round up all the people and get a great following and take everything over. No, they're sheep in the midst of wolves. But he tells them, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles when they deliver you over. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for uh, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. This is awesome because, see, Jesus didn't promise us our best life now. He promised eternal life. He promised something far better than a, a seemingly perfect life this side of eternity. But he also promised tribulation. He said this would happen. And when we read the book of Acts, we see this becomes normative. And if we study church history, we find this is normative throughout church history. Not every Christian everywhere is always persecuted, but persecution is always in the world and always directed toward the people of God somewhere. So time to time, place to place is persecution. The problem we face is that we are often blinded by our context. In the Western world, centuries of relative peace for Christians uh, have made a situation in which it's basically easy to be a Christian. But this is why many of our churches are nothing more than slightly religious social clubs. But we see here in the book of Acts and we see elsewhere throughout history a great faithfulness to Jesus and the, and the gospel, even in the midst of persecution. These are the fulfilled promises of Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, follow me, and they did. They look at Peter and John here. They followed him. This is a great victory in, in Acts chapter 4 because uh, Peter and John follow Jesus quite literally, standing before the same people that crucified him and not giving in like Jesus did not give in. They were literally following him, and this should be celebrated, and indeed is celebrated by the disciples. They understood faithfulness as the standard, not their comfort of life, not their quality of life, not their wealth or their health. They understood that the standard, the standard for living before Christ was that they were to be faithful. Look how they describe it in verse 29. They say, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What is their prayer? They didn't pray for comfort. They didn't pray for better equipping to continue the task. They, they, they prayed for boldness. They prayed for the kind of character it would take to be faithful. They likely also prayed for peace. They likely also prayed for the rulers to change their mind, to be redeemed, as Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies. But here, what Luke picks out of what occurred that day, they prayed for boldness. And that's the emphasis here. 
Faithfulness is the point of Jesus' teaching. And this is the point of Jesus' teaching. Remember when he taught about the last days? Luke 19, Matthew 24 and 25, he tells these parables. And in these parables, the one who is to be respected is the faithful servant. The one that's found working when his master returns. The one that takes the investments of his master and, and makes them bear fruit. He is the one that is faithful to do the will of the master. And so this is Jesus' point. Jesus showed us that faithfulness was the key. Jesus promised tribulation. Look how he puts it in John 16. He says, I have said these things to you. And he's wrapping up all he said about the Holy Spirit and everything else. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the disciples are being sent off into the world as sheep among wolves. They're being sent off into the world to face tribulation, to, to not have peace, but to have difficulty. But they're being sent off understanding that Jesus has won. Jesus has overcome the world. Remember when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples scattered in all directions. One was so urgent to get out of there, apparently he left his clothes behind. Now Peter and John followed at a distance. And Peter, however, denied Jesus three times, even before servants. So in the face of servants who said, hey, you were with him, he's like, no, I'm, I wasn't. And, and he, he swore in oaths and, and cursed and said, I don't even know the man. But now look in chapter 4. He stands up to the very same authorities that crucified Jesus. Now what accounts for the change? That is the question here. What accounts for this change that he did? Well, Acts chapter 2 happened. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. This was how they did it. They did it by the power of the Spirit. And when Jesus told them in John 16, I've overcome the world, he overcame it by the work that he did by defeating Satan, but also he overcomes it by sending into his disciples his very own Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to strengthen them, to give them the words to say, to say because he told them, don't worry about what you're going to say. It'll be given to you. How's it given? It's given through the Holy Spirit. So not only do we have these promises of Jesus that there would be tribulation, but that he commanded us to be faithful. We have these great examples of faithfulness all throughout the scripture. And then we have the very power of God himself within us, the Holy Spirit, to help us to be faithful in difficult times. The true believers, the true elect of God, they persevere in faithfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's people choose faithfulness. Now, in contrast, God's uh, opponents choose vanity. Now, vanity, we're not speaking of the, the modern English kind of concept of vanity, meaning a concern with one's appearance, although that's part of it. Uh, we're talking about the kind of vanity that means meaninglessness or emptiness, the way the word is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. This idea of vanity is that we are boxing the wind. 
that we are running towards something that, that cannot be reached. And so this idea is, uh, vanity literally is like a vapor or mist. It's something that can't be grasped. It's something that really has no substance. And this is uh, why we chose this word, but we chose this word because it's used in Psalm chapter two, which is quoted by the disciples. So the opponents choose vanity. They oppose Jesus here. And it's not just Peter and John that these leaders are opposing. They're opposing Jesus himself because these disciples made it clear this was the by the power of Jesus. These guys had the opportunity right here to say, oh yeah, we're that bad. We're that awesome that we, we healed this guy and we just have this power innate in us. Now kneel before us for we are gods. You know, the Peter and John were in that position that they could have claimed the power for themselves, but they didn't. They deferred to Jesus. And so these men, these leaders are opposing Jesus Christ himself. Jesus makes this clear when he intersects the life of Saul of Tarsus. When he's on the road to Damascus, he's persecuting Christians. He's getting papers, going to foreign cities to round up Christians and persecute them. And he, he intersects his life on the road to Damascus. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why do you persecute the disciples? He said, why do you persecute me? Because it is Jesus that is opposed when his work and his people are opposed. After Peter and John are released, they go and tell everything to the other disciples. And that's when they lift up this, this awesome prayer to God. And they quote Psalm 2. Now, I don't have time to go entirely through Psalm 2 with you. But I want to show you a couple things here. As they begin here, they, they quote and they, they give David credit for Psalm 2. And they say, uh, through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, there are a few things we need to understand from God's word to really understand what's going on here. Let's go to Psalm 2 and let's take a look at this. In Psalm 2, uh, it, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And when it says nations, it's speaking of all the peoples of the earth. Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? And the kings, that is the leaders of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against what? Against the Lord and his anointed. This word anointed, this is the word uh, in Hebrew that is Messiah would be translated into the Greek as Christ. And so this is against the Messiah. And what do they say? How's the rest of the Psalm go that was not quoted by the disciples that day? They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so in other words, the, the people of the earth are raging against God. Now notice they apply God in the plural here. Uh, that's because there are three persons in the Godhead. And if you read Psalm 2 carefully, you're going to see a conversation between the three persons of the Godhead. You have the Father speaking to the Son, the Son replying to the Father, and you have the Holy Spirit acting as narrator from this point forward. But look what it says of God here in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. And so the, all the people of the earth gather together, the kings, they try to do these plans. And, and what is God doing? Well, he's sitting in heaven. And he's kind of laughing at this because it's absurd. It's vanity for them to try to plot against God, the sovereign creator of the universe, the one who holds their molecules together by an act of his will. This is profoundly important for us to understand our position in relation to God. As human beings in rebellion to God, we are totally opposed to the idea that he is that powerful, that he is that great, that he is that much in control, that to plot against him would be a vanity, to resist him would be foolishness. Now, the first thing we need to do to try to understand this situation that these that the opposition is in and why this is vanity is we have to first of all understand the myth of neutrality i want to address the myth of neutrality jesus said this in the book of luke as uh john noticed some other people were casting out demons uh and it says he john says we tried to stop him because he does not follow us but Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So Jesus then sets up kind of a dichotomy. In other words, there's two opposing things. There's no other options. He sets up here that you're either for him or against him. He states this very plainly in Luke chapter 11 as he's receiving opposition from the leadership here. Some of the same people that are opposing Peter and John at this time. He was casting out a demon and they said, hey, he's only doing this by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In other words, they're kind of attributing this to Satan. And they, they tried to test him by seeking a sign from him, but he'd given him many signs. And then he goes on, and, you know, and addresses this issue. You say, I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. This is foolishness because every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house, divided house falls. And look how he says this. He challenges them on the issue. But then he goes, whoever is not with me, is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters do you see jesus once again making it clear there's no other options here you're either for him or against him nothing in between and we see this also in the book of ephesians chapter 2 because in ephesians chapter 2 paul is addressing them he's explaining to them all the great things jesus christ has done for us and he puts it this way he he says to them uh here's who you used to be and here's what Jesus has done for you. This is how chapter two goes here. And how we used to be, he's writing to believers and he says this to them in chapter two. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is a fascinating passage because what this is suggesting, actually what it's saying very clearly, is that there's no neutral parties. You used to be opposed to God by following Satan. <laughs> See how it says you're following Satan? It's because you're following your desires and yet you're following the ways of the world, 
which is really following the prince of the power of the air, which is another word for Satan. The Bible makes it plain. No one's neutral. Thinking you are neutral or attempting to remain neutral plays right into the hands of the evil one. And so to be ignorant of these things is to be led astray by them. To claim ignorance of God is to be led by the devil. To be uh, even neutral on the issue of Jesus Christ is to be opposed. There is no neutrality according to the Bible. Now, if you're thinking this and, and you're, you're saying to yourself, because I know when I first wrestled with this idea, I thought, you know, I don't think that's really true. When we doubt that this is true, we're actually proving the point. See if you can follow me here. The Bible states it very plainly that you're either for or against Jesus. It states very plainly that without him, you're dead following the prince of the power of the air. And But if you're for him, you follow him, you obey his commands. Jesus says, all those who know me, they obey my commands. They follow me. So it's one or the other. And if we say, well, I don't think that's true. I think you can be neutral. We're showing that we're opposed to what Jesus has clearly revealed in scripture. We're showing this to be true by opposing him instead of embracing the truth. It's giving in to the serpent's temptation, the same temptation from the very beginning in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? This is an attitude of battling against God. Now I know some will object and say this just can't be true. I know good people that are not Christian. Well, do you realize that the ones who resisted Jesus the most in the Gospels were the religious among them, the ones that people considered to be good by society? Now, what was so bad about them is that they were what's called self-righteous, and therefore they were automatically in denial of the Gospel because the Gospel says none is righteous. You have to have the righteousness of God. You have to get the righteousness provided by Jesus Christ. There's no other way to heaven. But the self-righteous says, no, I'm a good person. I do good things. Don't judge me by this gospel. Don't say I'm bad. Don't say I need your salvation or I need Jesus to die for me. That's an outright denial of the gospel. That is a resistance to the gospel. And by holding that attitude, the attitude is spread. By holding that attitude, it continues a rebellion against God. Now, I can show you that this is true, but you'll have to do the footwork. Go to those people you consider to be good people. You consider to be, hey, these are, these are people acting like Christians or living like Christians. Surely they're going to go to heaven and challenge them with the law, the Ten Commandments. Ask them if they've ever lied. Ask them if they've ever uh, had lustful thoughts in their mind. Ask them if they've ever hated someone in their heart. Challenge them with the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and watch them try to justify themselves. I challenge you to do so. And what you'll see is that you will quickly see them try to justify themselves against the law. What about those who are genuinely involved in good work? And we as Christians, we have the word of God. We can judge what good works are. We're told to inspect the fruit, so to speak. They're fighting for the right side. They're, they're doing the clear word of God. They're fighting for justice. 
they're fighting against oppression, they're fighting for life. You know, we have many allies as Christians in, in the battles and the social things of this world, standing up for the widows and the orphans, standing up for the unborn. Surely these people are going to go to heaven. Look, the question is not whether or not they do good works. The gospel question is whether they personally continue in rebellion to God or repent and follow Jesus Christ. For if they do good things, here's the question, who put it in their heart to understand what is good? The Bible tells us that it is God who wrote the law in their hearts, who gave them the ability and the opportunity to do what is good. Well, God grants all abilities and all opportunities are in his hand. And so even if we do good works, it's not of ourselves. It's of the power of God. And if that's not acknowledged, if we don't say even what I do that's good, I can't take credit for, it's God doing it, then we refuse to acknowledge God himself and we are indeed lost. Now, many people in rebellion will say, well, I don't have to know Jesus or I don't have to be a Christian to be a good purpose, good person. This causes them to hold themselves up as superior to God. Then they have to put themselves in the very place of God. Do you see how that works? To, to judge whether or not what they have to do and what they don't have to do in order to be a good person, be good for heaven or whatever, they have become God themselves. This is called self-righteousness. And they are numbered among the self-righteous because they suppose they are the judge and the source of their own good works. Now, don't get me wrong. We'll take those good works. <laughs> Society and believers benefit from the good works of bad people. We should commend them for it. We should reward them for it. We should celebrate it. We should praise God for the works of the self-righteous. But we have to understand and we have to continue to hold out and preach the truth that salvation only comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Then the good works really begin to count for something. Then these good works are then cleaned and sanctified before the Lord, and they become truly praiseworthy things before God. The truth is that a lot of people are doing good things for the wrong reasons. But again, praise God for their good works and share the gospel with them all just the same. Now, I want to return just for a moment for something it says in, in uh, verse 2 there. I want to take a look at this. Following the prince of the power of the air. Yeah, this is none other than Satan himself. What Satan does is he tempts people according to their desires. And in this way, he controls unbelievers and hence the world. And according to this verse, he's in the one in charge of the world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. That is, he's, he's kind of in charge of, of what's above in this world, the spiritual realms. Elsewhere, he's called the, the god of this world. Uh, and this is, according to the verse, he's in charge of the world of the unbelieving. This is who we once were. If we are found in Christ, we were once these and so we're, if we're to understand those who oppose God in the world, we have to understand the motives of the evil one. That's the second point here. Now, without going into a lot of details, there's a lot of cross-references in your notes for this that will show these things to you. 
He is the tempter. He's the deceiver. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the accuser of the brethren. Peter describes him as prowling around like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. But Satan is defeated. And we know that his end, described in Revelation chapter 20, is he ends up in the lake of fire with the false prophet and and with the Antichrist, the, the beast. He's thrown into the lake of fire. He's completely and utterly defeated. This is why following him is such vanity because he's being defeated and we've already been told the end of his story. God's plan is moving forward. God here is the ultimate shot caller. And those on God's side have both witnessed and experienced God keeping his promises. So they have learned that God executes his plans. So that is really the difference between these two is that those who act in faithfulness know that God executes his plans. Those who oppose God refuse to know that God executes his plans. In a word, God is sovereign. This is what they say in prayer. As they lift this up in prayer, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord. The very first address they give to the Lord in this. This is why the plotting of the nations is all in vanity. The people plot in vain, it says there, because he is the sovereign Lord. They begin with the general in Psalm 2, this general principle, but then they get specific in verses 25, or uh, following here in verse 27. Look, what was gathered here, now they take what was in Psalm 2, look, the nations rage, right? They plot in vain, and they, they come together against the Lord and his anointed, and they go, look, this literally happened right here in Jerusalem, because look, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all four of these different uh, self-interested factions for different reasons among themselves, they united together to get rid of Jesus, to get rid of the anointed, to get rid of Jesus Christ. He was a problem for the Jewish leadership. He was a problem for Herod. He was a problem for Pontius Pilate. Each group had different motives, but they were all really serving their own selfish desires. You see how the devil tempted them, how through manipulating them through their own selfish desires, tried to kill Messiah, but they failed. And they failed because they didn't know what they were dealing with. This is the vanity. They killed the author of life. Well, he can't stay dead. Peter said earlier, it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. Not only that, but what they tried to do, I want you to notice, played right into God's plan. Look at this says, they they say they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, that is Christ, who was Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do what? to get rid of this Jesus who was a problem. But what were they really doing? Look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They played right into God's hands. You can't beat God. He is the ultimate shot caller and we cannot defend him. Look in Isaiah chapter 46, how the Old Testament describes him. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God 
and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done. Do you see God God revealing the future? I don't say predicting because he's not predicting when he gives prophecy. He is revealing the future because this is done. It's history written in advance. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. He just declares them saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. And so this powerfully important. This is why it is vain for the nation's to plot against him. It is indeed the ultimate foolishness. Now I want you to find in here the ultimate encouragement to the believer when all this is said and done. How is this teaching encouraging to the believer? The fact that God executes his plan, especially when times are hard, it becomes increasingly difficult to be faithful. But if we know what God's plans are and we know that he gets them done, we can endure anything. You can endure a 15-hour ride in an automobile to get to Disneyland, right? Some people think about 15 hours in an automobile. They think that's like a sentence of death, especially if you're like six years old and you're in the back seat crammed against your brother who's teasing you. This is like a nightmare. But what's at the end of the trip? How can you endure such a thing? Well, it's the anticipation of what's to come. And even better, where this analogy fails is this. We're not as Christians sitting in the back seat with a teasing sibling. We are seated in the heavenly places with our Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose love for us is so intense that he gave his life upon the cross. Oh, we enjoy the ride. If we keep our focus on him, if we're not so worried about the difficulties of the ride and we keep our focus on him, we understand he is taking us through this time of difficulty. He's taking us to a destination, to an eternal dwelling place where there'll be no more tears and no more suffering and no more dying. It will be joy and it will be his presence forever. This means we must believe, we must have faith, we must believe that God will be successful. And he has plainly shown us that he is, so that we can know it to be true. We cannot be faithful if the object of our faith has proven unworthy of it. But those of us that have faith in Jesus Christ, now understand it's faith in Jesus. It's not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in our faith. It's not faith in our devotion to him. It's not faith in the church. It's not faith in the word of God. But those, are, those are part of it. It's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one whom the world conspired together to crucify. We're going to rid ourselves of this Christ. And what did God do? He raised him from the dead. Jesus said, no one's taken my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I will take it up again. So my first encouragement is this, understand God is in control. He is absolutely in control. If you receive persecution, if you encounter difficulties in this world, know this, that Jesus received it first 
and he received it the worst. He can sympathize with your situation and he can overcome your situation and your difficulty like he overcame the grave. And he has put in you, the believer, the same power that raised him from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God. His plan is moving forward. In the coming chapters, we'll see Stephen in chapter 7 face some of these same people and declare things to them, declare their hard-heartedness right to their faces throughout the entire history of Israel. He gives a dissertation, a summary of the scriptures that is just, (laughs) wait till you get there. It's incredible. But they stone him to death. But this Jesus who loves him, This Jesus who died on the cross for him, this Jesus reveals to Stephen as he's being stoned, he shows him a glimpse of heaven and he shows him Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. The only time he's mentioned as standing at the right hand of the Father is to honor this Stephen who gave his life. Surely he will encourage you in your time of difficulty, in your time of tribulation. So understand that God is in control and spend the trip with Jesus. Focus on him. Spend time with him. Did you notice that the leaders noticed that these guys, Peter and John, had been with Jesus? That was noteworthy. And it'll be noteworthy to you if people can see that you've spent time with him in his word and in prayer and with his people, indeed, it will become obvious to others and you will be that much more effective in your work for him. So be with Jesus and then do as the disciples did and notice what they did. Powerfully important. What do they pray for? And all this, you know, they faced all these difficulties. Okay, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer and they're going to say, take all the difficulties away from us. No, they, they prayed for boldness. And they said, you look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They knew what the mission was. They knew this, oh, we better, we better throttle back this gospel thing a little bit. We better take it easy because we got the attention of the leadership and we're supposed to submit to governing authorities. So we'll just take it easy here. No, it's not at all what they did. They doubled down and they said, Lord, give us boldness. And the Lord did. And people continued to believe more and more in Jesus Christ. So trust in Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of the faith. He will not let his time on the cross and his resurrection be in vain. He will give you the victory in faithfulness to him in in great rewards at the end of this great journey. Trust in Jesus Christ for he is making his plans move forward all the time. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for bringing us together and we thank you for this encouraging word. We know that we can trust Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you will put it in the hearts of all of us that as sure as you came, as sure as you were crucified, as sure as you were raised, you are going to bring all things together in you and you are going to return, and you are going to reign on a new heaven and new earth with us forever. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to keep our eyes on you. For you really are the prize. 
The new heaven and new earth will be great, Lord, we know. But the greatest thing about it is that you will be there. You will be there in such a way that there doesn't need to be a sun for light. Lord, we praise you for that. And we thank you for your work in us. And I pray today that you'll work in each hearer to convict their hearts to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why, thank you for coming together with us here, and I invite you to contact us. You can find more about our church at whitesrun.org. We can help you find a local church in your area that is like-minded, that exposes the scriptures we do here. Uh, you can contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com, and I will answer those personally. I will get back to you in a timely manner and answer your questions or objections and even even take your, your opinion or your advice. Uh, anything, any communication is appreciated. So contact us, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And uh, God bless you. May you be blessed by this message and the continued study of God's Word.